It's Monday, April 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Everyone is looking forward to how and when we can get back to work and get back to normal. We still have yet to hit the peak number of cases in the United States, but some are hoping that testing for antibodies in the blood could help get us back. If you have antibodies to COVID-19, it means you already had the disease and could be immune, at least in the short term. Rachel Becker, reporter at Cal Matters, joins us for how antibody testing could help, but there are still many questions left to be answered. Next, the virus has changed the way we internet. While some things may be obvious, people are starting to have more video chats with friends, family, and coworkers. Other aspects of the way we spend our time online can be surprising. People are moving away from their phones and using desktop computers more. People are consuming more news from local and established newspapers and less on partisan sites. And video games have seen an increase while sports have lost out. Nathaniel Popper, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for how we are spending our lives online during the pandemic. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There are a couple ways these antibody tests could be used. Epidemiologically, they're really valuable for tracking the spread of the virus, understanding the true fatality rate, and for being able to see where it's spread, who gets sickest, who doesn't, and why. Joining us now is Rachel Becker, reporter at Cal Matters. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks for inviting me. Everyone is very curious about how and when we can all get back to normal. When can we start going back to work? When can we start loosening up on the social distancing? And one of the things that a lot of people are pointing to and talking about is antibody testing. You know, it shows that you might have gotten coronavirus already and gotten over it. They're looking to people that have gotten over it to possibly harvest some of their plasma to help others. But the other thing, too, is, okay, so you have these antibodies, uh, maybe you're immune to it. For a few months, a short period of time, we can get back into the workforce. We can get back to normal. So a lot of people are looking forward to something like this, but there's still a lot of questions about it. Rachel, tell us a little bit about that. Antibodies are immune proteins that attack viruses and other pathogens, and they form as part of the immune response to a virus like SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the disease known as COVID-19. And so the hope is that by testing for antibodies, researchers, public health workers will be able to identify those who've already had the virus and who have fought it off and survived. There are a couple ways these antibody tests could be used. Epidemiologically, they're really valuable for tracking the spread of the virus, understanding the true fatality rate, and for being able to see where it's spread, who gets sickest, who doesn't, and why. But then there's this other conversation that's happening that you just mentioned about using antibody tests to try to maybe selectively lift the shelter-in-place order uh, that we have here in California and that's cropping up across the country. You know, maybe folks who have antibodies should be sent to the front lines. That's definitely a, a possibility that's been floated. But healthcare professionals, uh, scientists that I've spoke to urge caution. There's still a lot we don't know about the immune response to uh, SARS-CoV-2, to the novel coronavirus. Uh, we don't know how strong the antibody response is. We don't know what level of antibodies are considered protective. We don't know if everybody makes the right kinds of antibodies to be protective. And we don't know how long that protection lasts. So there are just still so many unknowns to, to start putting people's safety on the line. 
testing, testing, testing. It's all about testing. We're still barely, it seems like we're getting, starting to get a handle on actually testing people for the virus. But on the antibody testing side, there are a few tests that are there. And I know in some areas they're starting those tests on people, but we're still a little ways from getting this ramped up. Yeah, there have definitely been some studies that are going on across the country. CDC has one. Other research groups, Vitalent Research Institute and others are using antibody tests to, again, you know, trace the virus um, as an academic question. Stanford, though, recently launched a lab-developed test on April 6th at Stanford Healthcare. And the idea for that test is to determine which healthcare workers might be at lower risk for working with COVID-19 patients. And I say, you know, lower risk because we don't know exactly how much protection antibodies confer at this time. Going back to whether, you know, you get COVID-19, you get over it, and if you have this immunity towards it, enough antibodies to help you throughout that. There have been some studies, some preliminary findings that I think they've done these studies in monkeys. They were infected. Maybe a month later, they were still immune to it. Uh, tell us a little bit about what we know on that. And I know we don't know much. It's just this is, we're trying to piece it together as we go. Yeah, we know so little about reinfection still. There have been some reports of people potentially getting reinfected with uh, the novel coronavirus, but there is some doubt that the folks who were reported as getting reinfected had actually cleared the virus from their systems. It may have been more of a flare-up of the virus as, as they recovered and not reinfection. But researchers have done some studies in monkeys where they infected the monkeys and then, you know, watched their antibodies go up. And then a month later, they tried to reinfect the monkeys and the monkeys were not susceptible to reinfection. So a bunch of infectious disease experts wrote an article kind of just assessing the state of coronavirus research. And they wrote that that was reassuring. So We'll need a lot more of these studies. We'll need a long-term follow-up of people who've recovered to really understand it. But as those uh, the infectious disease experts wrote, it was reassuring about right. short-term immunity. That's different from long-term immunity. And SARS, too. I mean, like a loose cousin of COVID-19. They've done some long-term follow-ups on people that survived that. And they've seen stuff that suggests some of their antibodies lasted for about two years or so. But one of the worst-case scenarios that everybody... We, we want to avoid our, our, you know, this false sense of security from it. These tests are so new and we don't know much about the uh, SARS-CoV-2 yet is that, you know, there could be some false positive test results, things like that. And we don't want to get some of these types of test results and then send people back into the workforce and have other outbreaks. Exactly. Exactly. And um, it's, it's possible with a poorly designed test that it'll pick up antibodies to other coronaviruses, you know, not just SARS or MERS, but the, also the mild coronaviruses that folks might get seasonal colds from. Uh, and so a poorly designed test, it's possible that it could pick up those antibodies and then you'd get that false positive. And that false positive is the worst case scenario where folks will think that they're protected and that they're not. Uh, this could, you know, if, if, this shelter-in-place order is, is lifted too soon on the basis of imperfect tests, it could allow for uh, the spread to ramp back up, which is really a, a would be a terrible thing for public health and for the hospitals that are already doing the best they can to care for and to cope with the patients they're seeing right now. We did mention a bit ago about how there are some uh, places that are starting to do this type of testing 
uh, either Stanford or the CDC. But do we have a sense of when these might be able to be ramped up and, and more people could start getting these type of tests? It's really an open question, and it's an important question. Stanford just launched it for healthcare workers. One test has received emergency use authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. But given the problems we've seen with the supply chain and with ramping up of the uh, the diagnostic tests that look for the virus, the called the PCR tests, I think it's really an open question whether antibody tests will be able to ramp up quickly and really, especially at the scale, we would need to start saying, okay, like folks can start re-entering the workforce, life can start going back to, to normal. Rachel Becker, reporter at Cal Matters. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. This app, House Party, I think it had some history of being popular. It had been trending at some point, but it was really kind of limping along. And over the last few weeks, again, it's seen a traffic shoot up 80%. And it allows essentially, as the name would suggest, people to gather together in a video chat room, somewhat like Zoom does, but there's also games involved. It's fun. Joining us now is Nathaniel Popper, reporter at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Nathaniel. Thank you for having me. Wanted to talk a little bit about how our lives have changed because of coronavirus, all the social distancing that we're practicing. Obviously, Americans are spending a lot more time at home and increasingly are living their lives online. I and mean, these are things that we've been doing for a long time, but now we have this kind of moment to look and see how it's changing slightly. We're always looking for different ways to entertain ourselves, whether it's our yeah. Netflix or Facebooks or YouTubes. But one thing that's changing is that we're turning away slightly from our phones when the trend before that was everything was mobile. Everybody was working on mobile platforms, how to optimize videos and things for mobile. We're taking a turn back. We have our computers at home and we're working on those things a little bit more. That was a really interesting finding here. We put together a bunch of data that we pulled to look at how our behavior changed really in the course of just a few weeks. And you see these pretty dramatic changes in online behavior that is obviously very unusual, but these are unusual times. And one of the things that stuck out to us was that these sites that were seeking out for entertainment, for social connection, so Facebook, Netflix, YouTube, all of those services have seen the traffic on their apps declining at the same time that their websites have seen just skyrocketing traffic. So Facebook traffic to their website has gone up 27%, basically the matter of a few days. And their app, which used to be what everybody was checking, has sort of been limping along. And I think it's almost as if we're sort of remembering the virtue of looking at a big computer screen rather than squinting down at our phone all day. Right, exactly. We have the luxury of using our desktops and our laptops more. The other thing, obviously, this is one that we know, video chats. It's definitely having a moment right now. People are connecting all sorts of ways on different apps. I mean, there's obviously FaceTime, there's Zoom is a huge one, but there's a few right. other ones that people are gravitating towards right now because they need something more than just the video chat. They want fun backgrounds. They want other stuff to help kind of spruce that part of it up. It's really notable that it feels like just sort of connecting by text is not enough in this time where we can't see people. 
because of social distancing, we're not allowed to get together with our friends and family. And so the only way we can see each other is through video. And that has helped a bunch of services that really were not big ones before. This app House Party, I think it had some history of being popular. It had been trending at some point, but it was really kind of limping along. And over the last few weeks, again, it's seen a traffic shoot up 80%. And it allows essentially, as the name would suggest, people to gather together in a video chat room, somewhat like Zoom does, but there's also games involved. It's fun. It's yeah. about socializing. It's about being together. It's not just about doing business. I just saw um, specifically some friends posting up how they were on the house party thing. And I had to go look into it because I hadn't heard about it before. But yeah, that's the exact same thing they were doing playing the games, trying to have some fun other ways than just the traditional video chat. This is more than FaceTime. And so I think, yes, so much of the changing patterns is in that direction of finding ways to connect more deeply when we're feeling cut off from each other. The other sort of interesting trend in that direction is with our neighbors and locally, because we're thinking so much more about our local businesses and our local community. Is coronavirus here? Has it made it into the local hospital? What are the numbers around me? And so on that front, you have the social media network next door, which has been popular, but is still a relatively small player in the social media world. But again, it has just taken off over the last few weeks. Obviously, a lot of people are working from home, students that have had their schools closed, which is basically all of them. They're taking classes from home. So on that front, Zoom is definitely having a moment with a lot of students. Google Classroom, Microsoft Teams, uh, our company, iHeartMedia, we're using Microsoft Teams to connect and do uh, virtual meetings and all that. So these are also having a moment. But the thing that comes with that is privacy concerns. I know Zoom specifically had a lot of privacy concerns with Zoom bombing and, and a couple of other yeah. things as well. It feels like Zoom, more than any other company, has benefited from this. I think there's no company that's emerged from this more strongly. You've seen their stock overtake Uber in terms of the size of the company, the market capitalization. But along with that, as so often I think happens in the tech world when something takes off is you realize that they're not actually ready for prime time yet. And there just been this litany of security concerns that have come up, people being able to log in, snoop on other people's traffic. Of course, this issue of Zoom bombing, where people basically intrude often in offensive ways into other people's Zoom conferences. And I think it's this inevitable tale of Silicon Valley where it's not quite ready for the success that it yeah. has. That's why Zoom was so interesting to me on how it took off, especially with schools and online classrooms. Because of that, it was still fairly new. And it's exactly as you said, when it's new and hot and everybody wants to use it, all the other little cracks start showing after that. Right. So it was very surprising to me that Zoom took off so much because of that, especially for online classes, when you want something to be a little more stable for the students and obviously all the privacy concerns there. It sort of is a reminder of just how quickly behavior has changed. Obviously, video chat was something that existed before, but it was not something that all that many people were relying on before. It was not something people were thinking about so much before. Obviously, you know, I think in the business world, Slack was the big sort of trend, the big growth pattern, because you're chatting with people in between seeing them. Now you can't see them. And so you need a way to do that. And Zoom has obviously been the place to go. But it's going to be interesting to see as time goes on how much people move back towards things like Microsoft Teams, 
maybe hangouts from other places that have a bit more of a track record, especially with security. Now, this next angle of how coronavirus has changed the way we internet, I think it's a good one. So people have gone to their local newspaper sites and their local TV stations. They've turned to them more for news updates. They obviously want to know what's going on in their communities a lot. And partisan sites, those have maybe not had huge decreases, but at least stagnated, at least with traffic. And people are turning to a lot more large media organizations, sites that they trust, especially things like New York Times and the Washington Post, you know, when the president says a lot of things like, oh, fake news and whatnot. And, you know, it has its place when things start getting heavily politicized. But it's good to see that people are turning to these local sites more now. There's definitely a sense of the last few years have been all about skepticism towards the media, obviously partisan news sites have fed that skepticism of of corporate media, but you come to a time where you just want the facts. And I think people are turning back to those traditional sources and saying, if I just want the facts, this is still the place I'm going to go. I don't necessarily want the opinions. I want to know what the numbers are in my community, what restaurants are shut down. I want to know how much things are spreading. And so you're seeing more mainstream sites, which have in many ways struggled in recent years, those have been the places where people have been going. And unfortunately, this has not necessarily meant a great sort of business boom for these companies because a lot of these companies make most of their money from advertisers. And so even if you have a lot of viewers, if advertisers are sort of dropping out, which is what's happening now with the economy, the sites are continuing to struggle. Local newspapers are continuing to struggle economically, even as their readership you know, is skyrocketing. Yeah. Two sites that saw big increases, CNBC, the business news website, has seen a huge increase, and the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Obviously, people are pointing to them a lot for hard numbers and guidance on social distancing and and whatnot, so they've seen big numbers. And the last uh, section I want to talk about, video games. Obviously, sports have dropped off a huge bit. Uh, ESPN website has gone down. Things like Twitch and TikTok, people watching other people play video games and interact on that scene has increased. Yeah. I mean, Twitch is the largest service to watch other people play video games. And they were already that before this. But you look at the chart in their daily numbers, you just see right as social distancing sets in, you just see their numbers take off, explode. And it's one of the only forms of entertainment, at least live entertainment that's (laughs) left to us out there. And, you know, I think TikTok is an interesting one. I mean, it's it's an app that's only on the phone. You might think that this might hurt them somewhat, but I think silly entertainment, sort of a distraction from all of this weightiness is something that people still want. And so I was struck by the fact that TikTok was one of the apps where things actually haven't changed that much for them. They just keep getting more and more popular. That That idea of watching somebody get hit in the back of the head with a sponge by their wife is like, you know, it's it's something we, we need just as much now as we did two months ago. Nathaniel Popper, reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.